You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. And welcome to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time here, we extend to you a very special welcome. Uh, my name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder. I'm not teaching today. We have a special speaker who I will introduce in just a moment, but I wanted to mention one thing um, that wasn't, I think it was not in the announcements. I haven't looked at the bulletin to see if it's in there. On October 6th, anyone who's interested, especially in medical missions, but if you're, if you're going into medicine and you want to serve Christ faithfully, or if you are interested in a mission, uh, a life uh, where you're going to be on the mission field, at our home in Fuquay, Verena, Allison and I are going to host Joy Vonk, who is medical missionary out of Houston. She used to serve here on worship team. She played violin and went to Kenya and got very, very, very sick and has long COVID. She's still dealing with issues, but she's back in Houston at the, at the at, at headquarters. And so she's still serving the Lord in medical missions. And Joy is going to be with us on October 6th is a Thursday night. We, we won't have dinner, but we may have some kind of snacks and hors d'oeuvres, that kind of thing. Um, back in 1988, my first wife, Linda, who is now with the Lord, um, she, she did not finish her school at Tennessee Temple where we met in Chattanooga. So she went back to Appalachian State and began to finish her degree. In 1988, I was scandalized. They had this orientation on Sunday morning, and you had to go if you were a student. Well, I took my 10-year-old, 8-year-old daughters and my 5-year-old son with me to Alliance Bible Fellowship. It was a new church in Boone. And <clears throat> I still remember the sermon. The pastor was preaching on Joshua lingering in the tabernacle after Moses had left, and how Joshua learned from Moses. I, like I said, I, it, it made quite an impression on me. Well, my five-year-old son grew up at Team Valley Ranch, mostly came down here for three years. He was in this church. Then he went back and served at Team Valley for several years. Well, he went to Campbell for one year, then to Appalachian State, back to Team Valley, and ended up back at Alliance Bible Fellowship. Michael Talley is the pastor of discipleship at Alliance Bible Fellowship. Um, when you hear him, it, if it sounds a lot like me, I'm sorry about that, Michael, uh, preach. But I cannot tell you the joy it is for us to be in constant contact. We agree on so many things, politics, theology, um, History, we read a lot of history, we talk about it, we discuss everything. Most of all, we agree about the sorry state of referee in, in the United States, in football especially. Jim McLaughlin agrees with that as well. Many of you too. But I, Michael and I are often talking about sermon series. He did one on Proverbs a couple of years ago. I asked him if he would do that this time when he was with the young adults. He's been with the young adults this weekend. And then he preached last year on praying for the persecuted church. And I'm like, man, I hope 
You get to preach that sometime at Grace. If he says something that you've heard me say before, it was probably originated with him. It goes both ways, but I hope you're going to be blessed, and I hope our hearts will be encouraged to pray for the persecuted church. Who knows how long it'll be before we need people somewhere else in the free world to be praying for us. So, Michael Talley. I consider this my home church. I, I was only here for a short time of life, but those were very, very, very formative times for me. Uh, I haven't been able to be here nearly as frequently over the past 10 years because I'm on staff at a church and it's hard to get away. And, um, and yet, from 1998 to about 2002, this was a very, very important place for me. Uh, I asked the young adults, I think there was one person in the room, how many of you were here when, at this church when we worshiped across the street at the middle school? How many of y'all were, yep, there we go, section over here. How many of you went to one of the uh, good old-fashioned Christmas parties at the Ruritan building? There, yes, absolutely. Those are great. These were very, very formative years for me. And uh, so it's, it really is an honor to be back and to share God's word uh, with you. I had a fantastic time with the young adults yesterday, uh, yesterday and Friday night. Thank you uh, for letting me be part of that. So, um, A couple years back, I discovered a daily newsletter from a blogger named Tim Challies. Not sure if you've heard of Tim Challies. He's a wonderful blogger, author himself. But the reason I find myself going to his website a couple of times a week is because he puts out an article called A La Carte. And this is a very simple article. He just collects and curates seven or eight links from some of the best articles on the internet from the day before, usually concerning Christianity, evangelicalism, something I'd be interested in. Uh, but that's not even what keeps me coming back to Tim Challies' A La Carte. At the very top of this article that he puts out every day. He has a link that, that, uh, to a site where he uh, publishes the top 5, 10, 20 books uh, from Kindle that are the deal of the day for Christian books. So you can find a list of about 20 books almost every morning for 99 cents on Kindle, which is wonderful. Um, do you know how hard it is to pass up a 99 cent book that you've been wanting to read? Do you know how hard it is to pass up a 99 cent book that you don't even really care to read? <laughs> Uh, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. I think I inherited this habit from my father, but us tallymen proudly collect books that we'll probably never read. But that doesn't matter. We have stacks and stacks of them. Mine just happened to be on my phone. It just makes us a little bit smarter to know that we own the book. And so over the years, I've amassed hundreds of books from Kindle uh, that I'll never read. But a couple of years ago, one came across the feed. It was 99 cents. It caught my eye. And this will tell you a lot about me that this particular book caught my eye. It's from a man named Richard Wormbrand. There's a book called Tortured for Christ. Most of you would scroll past that and say, I don't care, this is not, I'm not gonna spend a dollar on that. But I thought, interesting, one of my best friends up in the mountains, he is a huge Richard Wormbrand fan. He was influenced a lot by this godly man. And so I thought, I, I, I'll, I'll read that. I downloaded it. And for whatever reason, I just, I started reading it and I, I couldn't stop reading. I think it took me about a day to finish the book. It, it deeply moved me. If you don't know much about Richard Wormbrand, he's a Romanian pastor in the 1940s, which was a difficult time to be a Romanian pastor. On August 23rd, 1944, a million Russian soldiers entered Romania and took over the country. History has this, it's wild. Soon after this, the communists in Russia took over power in the Romanian country. And, and of course, one of the first orders of business for the communists when they were taking over these small countries is to go after the church because the church 
would often pitch a huge dissent against the Communist Party, and so they had to silence the church. That's the first order of business. Now, you might think that they would use oppression at first, but they didn't. Instead, what they would often do is go in and try to seduce the church leaders into bowing the knee. That's exactly what happened in Romania. They were wildly successful. Thousands of pastors went along because you don't have any trouble. You just go with the party in power, right? Well, at one point, pretty soon into this, uh, this process, within the first year, the communists all gathered together and they had this large congress or meeting with all the Christian leaders and they wanted to elect a figurehead for the communist church that, uh, in, in Romania. And can you guess who they chose to be the figurehead? Joseph Stalin. And at this congress, pastor after pastor stood up and declared allegiance to Stalin, to the communist party, into Jesus Christ. Richard and Sabina, his wonderful wife, one of my new heroes, was there. His wife, Sabina, leaned over and said, Richard, stand up and wash this shame off of the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. He leaned back and he said, if I stand up, you lose your husband. Sabina replied, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. (laughs) So he stood up. He he talked against the communist church. And for the next three years, he became target number one for the uh, communist party. But he was also able to form a robust network of underground churches because he knew what was coming. The the seduction of the church would soon end and then the dissenters would be punished. And so he was able to organize a wonderful, robust network of underground churches. Well, sure enough, as he was walking to church one cold February morning in 1948, an unmarked van screeched to a halt in front of him. Four men jumped out, threw him into the van, and for the next eight years, he was hidden and brutally tortured in a private cell, and nobody knew where he was. The secret police actually came to his wife, Sabina, pretending to be the underground church, and they said, he's dead. We attended his funeral, and she was crushed that she lost her husband. But in fact, he wasn't dead. He should have died. He was beaten to the uh, point of death on many, many occasions. Most of his cellmates did die. But for whatever reason, he didn't. He was beat to the point of death. They'd throw him back in his cell. He would slowly recover and do it all again. Well, after eight years, he was ransomed and set free. He reunited with his wife, this wonderful scene in the book, and they went to Norway where they saw a doctor for the first time in a decade. Now, could you imagine sitting in that doctor's office after that treatment for a decade? The doctor examined him saw his broken vertebrae, saw the places where his skin was carved, saw the places where his skin was burned. He examined the 18 holes they punctured in his body. Then they did x-rays and looked at the scars on his lungs and the tuberculosis. And finally, the doctor stepped back and he goes, you should be dead. (laughs) The books say that you're a living miracle, a walking miracle. And Richard Wormbrand calmly from the hospital bed said, this doesn't surprise me. I serve a God of miracles. I believe God performed this wonder so that you could hear my voice crying out on behalf of the underground church in persecuted countries. He allowed one to come out alive and cry aloud the message of your suffering, faithful brethren. This isn't an early church saint. This is in our lifetimes. Richard Wormbrand. 1967, Richard and Sabina started a ministry. Perhaps you've heard it called Voice of the Martyrs. 
very active and thriving, and it has shined a lot of light on the persecuted church across our globe today, which is very hopeful. In fact, they're one of the driving forces behind uh, what is called the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Typically, this happens sometime in November. We're close enough. It's honestly an arbitrary day they pick anyway, but it's good for us. I think the sentiment behind that is that it's wise, it's responsible, it's good. In fact, biblical for churches to pause at times and to remember our suffering brothers and sisters. Hebrews chapter 13 says it this way. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. And remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the, in the body. So it's good for us to pause every once in a while to, to consider and to remember as if we were in prison with our suffering brothers and sisters. And this is happening widespread across the globe today, this morning. Now, I imagine a service like this could be very uncomfortable for many of us. Maybe you weren't expecting to come to church and to be hit in the gut, especially by a guest preacher. Um, But if we're honest, you know, we we don't know how to handle this. We don't know how to pray for the persecuted church. We get uncomfortable. Our our tongue gets tied as we try to think of words to say. We we see the videos. We hear the stories. Maybe you even get the voice of the martyrs uh, uh, literature that comes to your house. We see the stats. But but when it comes time to pray, how, how do you pray? Typically, when people suffer or when they get in a jam, when they get in a hard spot, we tend to pray for safety, for deliverance. And I think those are really, really good prayers. But is that how Richard Wormbrand would have you pray? Or Paul, for that matter? Is that how we should pray? It's the question that I want to consider this morning. How can we pray for the persecuted church? If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be here in Ephesians 1. Um, At our life group at our house earlier this week, we were looking at Ephesians chapter six, and it's interesting. Paul's writing this book from prison, and he asks for prayer at the end. He doesn't ask for my quick release, my safety, my deliverance. He asks for courage, that I'll be able to speak how I ought to speak. And so we're gonna look at a prayer that is at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Now, the Ephesian church knew all about persecution. And really, the whole New Testament just knew about persecution. Almost every letter at some point was written to a church that was suffering and struggling for their faith. It's a brand new religion and in a very oppressive Roman world, the Jews, the Romans were very much against the church in the early days. And so the whole New Testament is written to a church that is struggling. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul planted the church, they were going through persecution. People were coming and opposing Paul's message. The last word that we hear from the church in Revelation chapter two, Jesus is, is, is uh, writing a letter to this church and they are already bearing up under the weight of great, great persecution. And as I just mentioned, Paul is in prison as he writes this letter, the new persecution. We're gonna look at this prayer and I think this is a powerful prayer for us uh, to consider. And I think it gives great words for us as we consider praying for our hurting brothers and sisters, the ones that are uh, bearing up under the great uh, weight of persecution. And so, I'm gonna read uh, verses 15 to 22, and this is your tradition, I believe, so would you stand as we read the word of God? One of the most beautiful, profound prayers in the entire Bible. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'll just pray. Lord, thank you for your word. This fills us this morning, Father. We are hungry for your word, Lord. As we come to the text this morning, we open up our hearts. As we have our Bibles opened up in our hands right now, Lord, we open up our hearts and we will do what you ask us to do. We'll receive the grace that you give us, God. Be with us this morning as we consider these words, God. Open up our minds, too, so that we will understand. Uh, open up our lips that we may pray, Father, for the, the, the church um, as you would have us pray. We pray your blessings in Jesus' name, amen. I believe this text gives us five practical ways to pray for the persecuted church. Five practical ways. The first is this. As you begin your prayer, make sure to start with thanksgiving. As Paul does here. Most of his prayers begin with thanksgiving, but specifically pray for this. As you think about persecution, it seems as if the gospel is stopping its, its spread, but that's actually not the case. Thank the Lord that the gospel continues to expand and continues to advance in spite of the persecution. That's how Paul begins this prayer. In verses 15 and 16, he says, Ever since I heard about your faith and love, I've not stopped thanking God. Why was he thankful? He was thankful because the gospel continued to advance. Now, if anybody knew about the advance of the gospel, it was Paul. In a lot of ways, the first century church, the, the advance of the gospel was very directly tied to this man. God had set him apart as an apostle to the pagan Gentile world. And literally everywhere Paul went, lives were changed. If you want to see how the gospel advanced in the first century, go look at the maps in the back of your Bible and look at Paul's missionary journeys. And you can roughly see an outline of how the gospel advanced. It went with Paul. Paul was a very instrumental figure in the early church. The advance of the gospel was very much tied to him. And yet... As instrumental as Paul was, Paul knew that the advance of the gospel was bigger than he was. He knew it was bigger than himself because Paul wasn't always able to get out and plant churches. Case in point, where is he writing this letter? From prison. Now he's gonna preach to everybody in the prison cells. He's gonna advance in that lonely spot in the prison, but he couldn't get out on the road and in the boats and go to the places that he wanted to go. He hadn't even been to the city of Ephesus in five or six years when he wrote this letter. So can you imagine the joy that he experienced when he got the report from the prison cell that the Ephesian church was thriving under the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila? The Romans had arrested Paul to stop the advance of the gospel, and yet the gospel kept on bearing fruit. Thank you, Lord. You're so much bigger than we are. You're so much bigger than our efforts. The gospel will go on. Friends, the gospel is so much bigger than we are. God uses us and he's happy to use us. He doesn't depend on us. Isn't that nice? He does not depend on us. In the mid 90s, God was using a pastor. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Julio Ruibal. God was using him to unite the fractured churches in Colombia, South America. This man was known as the apostle to the Andes because early in his life in Bolivia, as a young man, he led a nationwide revival in the country of Bolivia. But in the, in the late 1970s, he moved his family north to Colombia to see if he could have the same ministry success 
and that country because that country was deeply divided at the time in the 80s and 90s. Well, he labored for 17 long, hard years and he saw very, very, very little fruit. He tried and tried and tried to get the pastors together, but they were marked by a spirit of great division. In December 1995, he was driving to a pastor's meeting to pray for unity. There was apparently a couple of pastors that would come uh, to these prayer meetings and he stepped out of his car to go in and pray. He was senselessly murdered by two gunmen from a local cartel. He was lost. He was on the sixth day of a fast for the churches in Colombia. The only pastor that seemed to care about the advance of the gospel in this country was tragically lost. This is the point of persecution from a human perspective. From a human perspective, persecution stops the advance of the gospel. Now we've got this guy out of the way. We don't have to worry about the gospel expanding. This is why the rulers of the world try to persecute believers. They think it will stop the advance of the gospel, but they are wrong. They are always wrong. The advance of the gospel is not tied to any one of us. In 1995, God had a different plan. The funeral pastors from all over the country showed up to grieve Julio Ruibal, and the Lord at the funeral service broke the spirit of division. They confessed. They forgave one another. And in tears, over 200 pastors signed a covenant of unity, and they immediately began the next week rolling out maps of the city uh, 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 that they were in in Colombia uh, to be able to strategically and together reach the country Revival immediately broke out and thousands of souls were saved and the drug cartels were pushed out of the cities. And so as we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters today, let us begin by thanking God that his gospel is so much bigger than we are. Here's a second way that you can pray for the church today, the persecuted church. Pray that our brothers and sisters in Christ would experience a deeper knowledge of God. This is where the, the prayer picks up in verse 16. He says this, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, this is his first request. I pray that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Paul is essentially praying here that the Holy Spirit would give the church a deeper knowledge of God. This is really interesting Because if you look at the first little bit of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, the first 14 verses, he's going to pour out a lot of knowledge of God. This is one sentence in the Greek. Paul takes a big deep breath and he gives us, I think there's like 16 or 17 different attributes of God in this one particular sentence. And so he is all about giving the church knowledge of God. This is who God is. God is giving you all of these things. Um, But now he prays that the church would have a knowledge of God. This is interesting. Technically, they already know God because he just told them about him, right? Well, not necessarily. There are two types of knowledge, and we all know this. There's a type of knowledge that comes from information. Types of, this type of knowledge you get by studying, by researching, by reading, goes to your mind. But there is another kind of knowledge, and it's a personal knowledge. And this comes through prayer. It's a heart knowledge. It's what Paul wants for the Ephesian church, especially as they're suffering, as they're struggling. Listen, knowledge based on information is good and it is necessary and it is helpful. We need to learn about God through the Bible, through study, through education. If you're not growing in your knowledge of the word and of, of, uh, of theology, you need to keep doing this. This is a wonderful pursuit. But the, the problem happens when this is all that we do. 
when all that we care about is theology and we don't really have an interest in knowing God personally. And I know this is the case. Some of you have so much head knowledge about God in your head. You, you grew up in the church, you heard the stories, you memorized the answers, and so it feels like you know him. And in fact, you can develop a, a type of immunity. You come to a text like this and you're like, check the box, I know that, song. I know that, I know that passage, I, I, I believe in it, yeah, this is good, this is fine, let's go to lunch. But that's a problem. It's possible to know all about God without actually knowing him. Paul prays for this church that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they could truly and to know him, to experience the Lord. I recently read about George Mueller. Uh, many of you know this amazing man who invited hundreds of orphans into his home in Bristol, United Kingdom. He believed that the chief duty of man was to be satisfied in God, as the, as the catechism says. And so he made it his discipline every morning to wrestle with God in prayer until he found that he was happy with God. Wrestle, I know we had several wrestlers at the young adult retreat this weekend. Imagine that, wrestling with God in prayer. Sometimes you just wake up and you don't feel happy and you don't feel satisfied in the Lord. But Mueller, I think what gave him the strength and the energy to do the things that he did is because he was devoted. Sometimes taking a very long time, he would wrestle with the Lord in prayer until he was satisfied with God and happy. The chief duty of man is to delight in the Lord. Can you think of a better thing to do every morning? Can you think of a better thing to pray for our brothers and sisters who are hurting and suffering persecution today? It'll be impossible for them to endure on head knowledge. They need heart knowledge. And so as you pray for them, pray that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Listen to this powerful quote from Richard Wormbrand. Westerners have probably heard about brainwashing from the Korean and Vietnamese wars. I've passed through brainwashing myself. It's the most horrible torture. We had to sit for 17 hours a day for weeks, months, years hearing, communism is good, communism is good, communism is good. Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid. Give up, give up, give up. Can you imagine? Several Christians have asked me how we could resist brainwashing. There's only one method of resistance to brainwashing and it is this, heart washing. If the heart is cleansed by the love of Jesus Christ and if the heart loves him, one can resist all tortures. Pray for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. Here's the third way. Pray for a deeper awareness of hope. Pray that they would understand the hope that is waiting. Verse 18, Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened that they may know what is the hope to which he has called them. It's a short sentence, but there's so much power in that. I just pray that you would have a taste of the hope. Paul wants the, the glory and the splendor and the majesty of that day when you're in, in, in the presence of Jesus to give you strength to live this day when it seems like you're abandoned. Hope is absolutely essential to our existence. It is just as important as food, water, oxygen. You might not think of it that way, but it is. We're, we are narrative beings. We were born into a story. Your life has a beginning and it has an end and you're, it's unfolding as a story. And because of that, hope is essential. When hope is cut off, you're left with despair. You're left with anxiety and that's what's happening in our world. There's no hope for the future, for our world. And perhaps you brought that in here this morning. There's despair. There's anxiety weighing down your heart. But if the Lord opened the eyes of our heart so that we just got a glimpse of that day when we stand before Jesus, 
the hope that is waiting for us in heaven, everything about our lives today would change. Everything. Hope is that important. And it's why the New Testament is filled with, with encouragements to hope. We don't typically do that. When someone's hurting, we say, it'll get better. Just wait a week or two or a month. And the New Testament says, it'll get better. Just wait until you're dead. <laughs> when you go see Jesus face to face, it'll be better. That's actually really good biblical advice. There's a day coming. It'll be better than this day. Hold on. Don't let go. Let me try to give you an example of how powerful hope is in our lives. A few years ago, many of you know, I worked at TBR Christian Camp for about seven years after I graduated college. I was on full-time staff there. Now, if you've ever been to TBR, you know that it is the Christmas tree capital of the world. Beautiful. We, we get our Christmas trees up there. Y'all come up to get it. We just go in our backyard and chop one down. Actually, it's not that simple. Um, they're very, very expensive, right? But we had some friends down the road that uh, owned a, a large Christmas tree farm and they had a massive order to fill. It was early November. It was very cold and the crowds had already left uh, the mountains. And so um, they, they didn't have enough help getting the trees cut down. And so they came over and asked some of the full-time staff, hey, we'll, we'll pay you for the day. Can you come over and help us cut Christmas trees? And so, yeah, I needed a little extra cash. And so it was great. Now, this sounds nice and sentimental. You're like, I would have loved to have done that. That's great. This was not, we weren't in our sweaters. We weren't taking selfies and drinking hot chocolate as we cut down the trees. That's not what this was. This was grueling, backbreaking work. We started the day when it was dark and we finished the day when it was dark again. <laughs> um, we had to clear the side of a mountain, no lie. And we walked up this mountain and this mountain was not, it wasn't just a nice rolling hill of, I think it kind of curved back at the top. <laughs> the Christmas trees at the top were pointing down. It was a massive, massive mountain. And we had to clear this hill in a day and uh, we'd go up and down and up and then we'd load it into the baler and try not to get your hands sucked up into the baler and, <laughs> and tie it up yourself, throw them up into a truck all day long. I couldn't walk for a week. Um, former youth pastor at our church at Alliance Bible Fellowship, he said, these hands were made for turning pages and that's about it. So, I, you know, this was, this was new work. Some of you guys worked like that and uh, I applaud you guys. Um, but at the end of the day, they wrote me a check for 80 bucks. I needed some extra cash. I got some extra cash. I think it was gone by that next Tuesday from Bojangles. <laughs> Probably how I used it. All I remember about the day was the backbreaking, grueling hard work. But... What if Tom Hall and Rock Hall had called me over there and they said, I need you to clear the side of a mountain. And at the end of the day, I'm going to give you a million dollars. What would have changed about the day? Absolutely nothing about the, the, the pain of the work and the fact that I wouldn't have been able to walk. It would have been just as hard. The mountain would have been just as steep. But I guarantee you that my attitude would have been radically different if I knew that, hey, once that sun goes down, I got a million dollars coming, right? I'm going to dance up that hill all day long and say, guys, what are y'all doing? Let's go. Let's keep it going. Uh, hope, I want you to see, changes everything. The work would have been just the same, just as difficult, just as grueling. But if I had a better picture of what was coming for me, my attitude would have been absolutely different. How many of us are slogging through life for an $80 payout. Your hope is so, so, so small. You don't even have a vision for the future. That the New Testament, just word after word, poor, you have a beautiful vision that's coming for you. 
but we're, we're slogging through life for an $80 payoff. Life is miserable because we cannot see beyond our current struggle. We don't inc- realize the incredible future that we have in Christ. How did Paul joyfully make it through the shipwrecks? Through the beatings, through the betrayals, through the abandonments, through the sleepless nights, through the cold nights, because he knew what was coming. And so as we pray for our brothers and sisters today that are persecuted, that are hurting, let us pray that they would experience a deeper awareness of the glorious hope. It's not a cop-out. It's a biblical, wonderful prayer. Here's the fourth way. Pray for a deeper sense of God's love. Pray they know how much God loves them. I imagine one of the hardest aspects of ministry for persecuted brothers and sisters would be the loneliness. Anyone who tries to be faithful to God will go through seasons of loneliness, seasons of despair, heartache, but it must be especially true when you're in a country that is hostile to the gospel. This is why Paul prays for the church to know how valuable they are. Look at the end of verse 18. He prays that the eyes of their heart would be open to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? A little bit clunky. It's maybe not the, 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 the way that it would roll off your tongue like you think it might. But the grammar here is very deliberate. Most of the time when we speak of the inheritance, we think of what we're going to get. That's what an inheritance is. You have an inheritance waiting on you in Ephesians chapter 1, just a couple of verses earlier. In verse 11, in verse 14... Paul speaks about the inheritance that you will receive when you stand before Jesus. But in verse 18, amazingly, shockingly, Paul lets us know that God has an inheritance too. Can you believe it? Can you guess what this inheritance is? Us. It's the church. I feel funny even saying it, but it's in the text. And this is a biblical theme, Old and New Testament. God has a possession We've been called, we have been chosen, we have been adopted, we have uh, been chosen. He called us, he bled for us, he adopted us, he sealed us for the day of redemption. We are his people. And Paul prays that the church would understand that. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how valuable you are in God's eyes? And earlier in the chapter, in chapter one, he says he lavishes his grace on you. What a beautiful word. This is for you. Story of your life maybe is one of loneliness, one of abandonment. Some of you don't know the love of God. The story of your life is a story of people walking out on you, nobody looking you in the eye, nobody caring about you. You can't remember the last time someone called your name out loud. Nobody cares. If you are in Christ, if you have been called by him, adopted by him, and sealed by him, you are God's inheritance. When God looks at you, which he is doing right now, he loves you with a deep, and abiding and eternal love that will never burn out. Human love burns out. God's love never does. When someone gets saved, just as an example, uh, Christians also often talk about, there's a, there's a party going on in heaven right now. The angels are dancing right now. We get that from Luke chapter 15. That's actually not a right thing. That's just to say that the angels are dancing in heaven right now. Luke 15 says that when the lost sinner is found, there is joy before the angels. The angels are going, Oh my goodness, God is leading the joyful celebration. There is joy before the angels because the angels are astonished that God would love you that much. They are astonished at the love that he has for you. Pray that your brothers and sisters in Christ would know the love of God and that love would sustain them until the day they stand face to face with him. Here's the fifth and final way that you can pray for the persecuted church today. Pray for a deeper experience of God's power. 
Let's close it out in verse 19. Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would be opened so that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Pray that they would know the power and that they would experience the great power of God. I love this so much. Did you know that the power inside of us is immeasurable? Process that. It, you cannot calculate it. You cannot measure it. You cannot give a, a definition to the power that exists inside of you. It has no limits. I know that the adults in the room right now are struggling to comprehend that because we live in a world of limits. We live in a world of measurements. But the children in the room, I think, can help us. Where are the kids? <laughs> I need the kids because you can under, help us understand a world without limits, a world without measures, a world without any kind of boundaries. You remember this when you were a kid. When you tell your parents how much you love them, it's not this much. It's not this much, it's that much, right? You go all the way. There's no bounds to my love as a kid. When you're a kid, you don't have to worry about the things that adults worry about. Running out of food, running out of uh, money. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You, it's nice to live in a world without limits. But sometime around college, you realize the world has limits. It was on 210 and 55 the first time I ran out of gas. 16-year-olds, if you're learning how to drive, the orange light matters. It's not a suggestion. It really means you're about to run out of gas. I had to lug that car up into that speedway. I don't think it was a speedway back then, but um, that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to go to a grocery store in college and have all your groceries and you scan it and they go, insufficient funds. Have a nice day. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not fun. Or to, you know, look in the cabinets and, oh, no. Um, when you, I've realized my body has limits. When you have a 100-degree fever and some people are saying, hey, let's go for a three-mile hike in the freezing cold, stay in bed. Don't get out. That'll put you in bed for a week. And so uh, I realized that, you know, our bodies have limits. At some point, we get crammed into these world of very small limits. It happens to all of us. The tragedy is, is that most of us are content to stay here and live our Christian lives here. I can't do that. That's, that's you know, it's limited. I can't do that. Children know better. And I think the Apostle Paul knows better. The power that is at work in his sons and daughters is immeasurable. It knows no bounds. It knows no limits. I pray that you would see it. Do you see the power? The same power that brought Jesus out of the grave is alive and well in your heart this morning. The same power that brought his empty lungs, a breath back into his empty lungs and reignited his cold, dead heart is the same power that is in your heart this morning. It's the same power that exalted Jesus to the heavens and that seated him at the right hand of God. It's the same power that has given Christ authority over every ruler and power and dominion in this universe. That power is the name of Jesus and that power is alive in you. Do you believe it? Do you believe that it's alive? Now, please remember that you are limited. Paul will say in another letter that we are jars of clay. We're broken, we're cracked. And yet God has filled those cracked pots with surpassing power. As you pray for your brothers and sisters today, pray that they would experience the immeasurable power of God. Another one of uh, the heroes in our family, 
Corey Ten Boom, who'd organized this wonderful relief effort that ultimately fell flat. She ended up being persecuted herself. She said this in her book, The Hiding Place. After her human efforts had done their best and failed, God's power was finally free to work. And he did work in her heart in the midst of persecution in ways she never would have dreamt. The power inside of you is surpassing. It's immeasurable. Now frame this sermon, I'm done here, but I framed it around a simple question. How can we pray for them? Persecuted brothers and sisters, maybe it's a bit abstract. Maybe you have somebody in your mind that you're, you're lifting up right now, and I hope you do. I hope you're aware. If not, get the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. But it could be a bit abstract. I hope this text has given you a few practical ways to intercede, but if, if we're honest, probably what lurks a little bit heavier on our hearts in a sermon like this is, how would I respond? What if persecution came knocking on my front door? There's no guarantee that it won't. I realize that many of you in this room have been persecuted for your faith, but so many of us haven't. But if it came to our front door like it did for Richard and Sabina, they weren't looking for it, it just came. If it did for Corey Tin Boom, she wasn't looking for it. They were ready. These people were very ready for it. If it came like it did to Ruth and Julio Ball or Paul, would you be ready? Here's the scary thing about persecution. There's almost always a way out. All of these people had an exit ramp. Deny the name of Christ and you can keep your comfortable life. Will you be ready? Will you be ready if it comes? And I hope it doesn't, but will you be ready to cling to Christ and suffer knowing, hey, I've been praying for my persecuted brothers and sisters and I know God will give me the strength to go through this. How, how can we be ready? I do think we have an urgent responsibility to prepare to suffer. And I know what you're, you're hearing every Sunday because I talk to my dad about it almost every week. <laughs> I walk the parking lot up in Boone and we talk about sermons. And um, I know that that's a, an urgent prayer here, that you're ready. How, how can you be ready? Jesus told us to prepare for suffering. The New Testament assumes that we'll suffer and our world is rapidly changing. How can we prepare our heart? I, I think that... that the answer is simple, is we pray these truths over our brothers and sisters, ask that God would work them into our own hearts as well. May we know these truths to be true in our own lives. And so with that, let me pray, and we're gonna sing one extra song, but I wanna give you time to re reflect and respond in this last moment here. Pray with me. Lord, we humbly bow before you the resources that we have right now and the word of God and the, the text that we just read are almost unbelievable. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that the gospel advances no matter what happens to us. That's a liberating prayer. It's not tied to us. Lord, we want to be found faithful, Lord. We want to have freedom to be able to proclaim with boldness and with courage as Paul asks for prayer in Ephesians chapter six, Lord. We want the the boldness and the courage to, to proclaim your gospel, Lord Jesus, but we know that it's not tied to us. It's bigger. It's tied to you, Lord. May your spirit continue to work, continue to move, and continue to advance, and we're thankful when that does happen. We're thankful when we see people's lives changed by the gospel message, Lord, to, to see faith, to see love being developed. In my home church in Boone right now, there's a baptism service, Lord. I'm thankful for Lance. I'm thankful that you have changed his heart, Lord, and that he understands the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for working. 
Lord, I ask for the eyes of this church to be open to a deeper knowledge of you, not just head knowledge, heart knowledge, Lord. I ask for the sense of hope to overwhelm us this morning, Lord. May we think more today about heaven than we do about the worries of the week, Lord. I ask for a greater sense of your love for this church, Lord Jesus. May we not act out of fear in your presence, Lord, or act out of shame or regret, Lord, but out of great, great love. You have lavished your grace on us, Father. And I pray that we would act and live in the light of your power, Lord, your immeasurable power that you have freely given to us, God. Give us strength to face the challenge of the day. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.